This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. When I'm faced with those circumstances where I meet someone and I see that they don't appreciate my humanity, I see that as an opportunity to show them the windows. This week, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with civil rights lawyer and president of the human rights campaign, Alfonso David. We discussed his upbringing and the influence that had on his views on the value of democracy, his approach to leadership, and the impact of people not appreciating our humanity. We had a few laughs, but Alfonso encouraged me and all of you to sit and think about how the law has been used, the impact it has had on different groups, and how we can use our history to inform our present experience. Our conversation was a comfort to me in such turbulent times, knowing that we have leaders like Alfonso at the forefront of the fight for justice. Here's our conversation. Well, Alfonso, David, welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for coming. I'm so excited. So we'll jump right in. And my first question is about our resumes and how they're not a full explanation of who we are. And I'm wondering what's missing from your resume that you think people should know about? There is so much <laughs> that is missing from my resume, but I think the most important feature that may not be on my resume is how I lead. Mm. Um, I lead with spirit, not with ego. I believe that ego clouds our judgments and it distracts us from our goals. Uh, I'm a very performance-driven person, a hard charger, but I really lead with the spirit of my convictions, not by my title and not by my accomplishments. And that is a feature that may not be easily extracted from looking at my resume. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, I guess sort of speaking about you as a leader and the work that you do, what would you say you see as your purpose work? Uh, for me, it's ultimately achieving liberation for marginalized communities. Um, I have practiced law for more than 20 years now, mm -hmm. and I started practicing um, in the private sector. And after clerking for a federal judge, I, I worked in the private sector for a while before I made the decision and tapped into my courage uh, to really do the work that I believe is my life's work, and that is achieving liberation for marginalized communities. There are so many people around the world who are living under oppressive systems, and the, da the decks are often stacked against them. And I believe that the more, more of us who can take our skills and use our energies to equalize the playing field, the better it will be for humanity. So my ultimate goal is to achieve liberation for marginalized communities. I love that. And, you know, speaking of your life's work, and, and I want to kind of go back to the beginning, you were born in the U.S., but then I know that you spent most of your childhood in Liberia. Could you share a bit about your upbringing and the impact that had on you? Sure. So I, I, was, um, I was born in the United States and then moved to Liberia when I was a, a year old. 
My parents uh, moved back after school, and it was a, just a blissful experience for me. Uh, at least my memory of my childhood was uh, incredibly um, bright and loving. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time with family, actually only family. <laughs> uh, my father was in politics, and I, my, many members of my family were as well. And so for most of my life in Liberia, it was an incredibly blissful experience. And then uh, things shifted in 1980. There was a military coup and um, my uncle was assassinated and my father was put in prison and we were placed under house arrest. And we lived under those conditions for three years. Mm. And that experience for me, uh, certainly had an impact in several ways. I got to live in privilege and live in poverty. I got to live in a democracy and a dictatorship. I got to understand the value of life at a very young age and appreciate how quickly life goes. Um, it's just understanding the, the speed of our experience here on earth for me was um, was an incredibly impactful experience. I mean, knowing people and then the next day they're dead. Right. Um, just changes things and changes your perspective on life. And, you know, you spoke about living in a democracy and then a dictatorship. And I've read some things where you, you spoke about the value you see of democracy and also knowing our sort of purpose in life and, could you speak about how that sort of, you know, pushed you to become a civil rights lawyer? I know you mentioned that you were in private practice, um, but I know that you, you know, your most of your work is as a civil rights lawyer. Sure. Um, for me, it was, uh, I believe uh, the, the seeds were planted during the war. Okay. Uh, living as a child, living in a democracy, taking certain things for granted. Um, and then living in a dictatorship and understanding that my freedom uh, was something that I didn't have anymore. Um, and that really informed my thinking um, as to what I wanted to do with my life and the skills that I wanted to attain in order to achieve those goals. I shifted from medicine uh, to law when uh, I went through the war. I, I lost, I shouldn't say lost interest in medicine, I, I gained a greater interest in, in the law and using the law to benefit marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately became a civil rights lawyer because I saw how the law had been and continues to some extent to be manipulated against the interests of marginalized people. So we have to start with the underlying premise that the law has been used to colonize nations, to legitimize slavery. Right. To legitimize the ban on interracial marriages, to, you know, legitimize women being treated as less than men, to legitimize discrimination and bigotry against LGBTQ people. And as a child and ultimately as an adult, seeing that through line of how the law has been and continues to be manipulated to the disadvantage of marginalized communities, I wanted to master the law, understand how the law can be used for good, and 
use my skills to advance that purpose. Absolutely. And you know, you are the first civil rights lawyer to serve as the president of the human rights campaign. So I'm interested in knowing if there are things that you think you've brought to the role from your experience that others could not. Yes, I mean, I think <laughs> um, for the civil rights lawyers around the world and folks that practice civil rights uh, law, uh, we bring a unique perspective to the table. Um, men, most of us uh, have our skill sets grounded in constitutional law, um, understanding how the rule of law informs our individual rights. And that is a unique perspective that I bring to the table that others who are not trained um, in law or civil rights practice specifically wouldn't bring to the table. I mean, just understanding that the words on the page when we look at constitutions around the world and specifically mm -hmm. in the case of the US, um, you know, equal protection under the law, due process under the law, those words mean something, but have been interpreted in a way uh, to marginalize groups even further. So we have to remember that there are periods in our history where the Supreme Court of the United States said that it was legitimate to treat black people as less than human that it was legitimate to put Japanese Americans in an internment camp, that it was legitimate to criminalize the lives of LGBTQ people. I mean, if we sit with that for a moment and think about how the law has been used, the same law that exists today, right? We, we, we've made some modifications to the Constitution, but not recently. And a lot of the principles we rely on have existed for decades. So understanding the history and the impact that the law has had on the lives of racial minorities and LGBTQ people and women um, brings helps me bring a very different perspective to the work uh, and a different strategic approach to the work. Right. Well, I'm very glad that you're at the helm. <laughs> it makes me feel a bit better. Thank you. Um, you're also the first person of color to serve as the president of HRC. And I'm wondering if as a gay black civil rights leader, you know, you occupy this sort of unique space in nonprofit leadership. Could you speak about the experience of being both black and gay in leadership? Because when I think of like the sort of NGO world, it's very much historically mostly white-led. And so I wonder what it's like piloting that sort of atmosphere. Well, you know, it's interesting. In my professional life, I have unfortunately been in many uh, conference rooms, many environments where I am the only. Right, um, yeah. The only gay one, the only black one, the only immigrant. And I have used that reality is probably the best word to, to use, that reality of me being the only one to help change perspectives of people who are in the majority. And being the, the first black man to run the human rights campaign um, certainly comes with a level of responsibility that I don't take lightly. And also 
an opportunity uh, to change the landscape for those that will come after me. The responsibility is making sure that I take this platform to educate and build awareness for people who may not see the, the depths of indifference that we operate in. Mm-hmm. And making sure that all of us appreciate that we bring implicit biases to the table. And that's the first step in getting to that place that we call liberation. How do we break down the silos? How do we recognize that we bring different implicit biases to the table? And how do we recognize them and break them down to move forward? Without recognizing those things, we're living in, a, in an environment that's not real. And we're not honoring the history of, of bias, bigotry, discrimination that we all grow up in. Yeah. And and so I, I try to use this role uh, as an opportunity to both educate people that may not be black, may not be gay, may not be immigrants, uh, as to those experiences and how the internal systems uh, that exist in institutions and the larger society have been used to oppress people of color and LGBTQ people for such a long time. So this gives me an opportunity to to really break down some of those paradigms that have existed for a long time. Yeah, I think sort of, you know, the reverse of opportunities can sometimes be burdens. And as someone who has been the only black woman in a lot of rooms, I get tired, you know, of having to explain things and whatnot. And I'm wondering, like, do you have those days? Are you like, how do we not understand this already? Not often. It it does. Okay, you're better than me. No, no, no. I, I wanted to be careful in how I answered that question. Not often, because I often see it as an opportunity. Now, when it does happen, I have to admit there are instances where I'm deeply saddened. Mm-hmm. I'm disappointed when it happens that, wow, this is someone that I thought understood the challenges of being black in this country or the challenges of being trans or the challenges of being bi or whatever the identity is that's being oppressed. Um, But I often try to move myself beyond the sadness and the disappointment quickly into the realm of opportunity. And it's, okay, this person doesn't understand. So this is an opportunity for me or this is an opportunity for the institution or this is an opportunity for the collective to help this person move along. And, And the reason I say that is because if we don't take that perspective, we will end up living in a much more divided country and in, in global society than we do now. Yeah. Right? We know that there are those who are thriving on separating us and dividing us. We just went through four years of an administration that was built on separating people, built on fear. And I think we have to fight against that because if we don't, we will end up creating two separate countries, two separate mm-hmm. global societies where it's us versus them. And if we do that, we won't ever achieve equality. We won't ever achieve liberation. So when I'm faced with those circumstances where I meet someone and I see that they don't appreciate my humanity, I see that as an opportunity to show them the windows. I really like that. And the whole not appreciating your humanity thing really sticks with me because 
in 2016, right after the election, I wrote an article about how I wasn't going to sort of debate the value of my humanity with people. Like, this is just not something I'm going to do. <laughs> I mean, you know. It gets what tiring. What can you say? It gets tiring. I understand. Yeah. So then what would you say sort of sustains you in tough moments and, you know, difficult moments where you may be disappointed by someone? What sort of propels you forward? Our history. Mm. I think about our ancestors. I think about what people went through before we arrived. And that puts everything in perspective. Yeah. Because um, this is not to create hierarchies of pain or hierarchies of discrimination. But it is to appreciate that, as Martin Luther King said, the arc of justice is, is a long one. And when we use our history to inform our present experience, it helps propel us into doing the work we have to do under very trying circumstances. What we just went through with COVID and unfortunately are still going through yeah. um, was unprecedented, some would say. And then others would say, well, we had the influenza pandemic decades ago, and there are some experiences or some, um, some teachings that we could take from that but experience. But we refuse to learn. But we refuse to learn. And, and well, we look at the HIV AIDS epidemic that unfortunately is still plaguing many black and brown communities around the world. And what we saw in the 1980s, we could learn from some of those experiences as well. We end up repeating um, broken cycles uh, without if we don't learn from our history. Yeah, absolutely. And so then what are you most proud of? Because, you know, here I am, I'm making you talk about all these difficult things. I'm like, so are you getting annoyed by people? But I want to know, like, what you're <laughs> proud of. <laughs> I am most proud of seeing my true capacity. Mm. Um, we live in so many different systems that tell us that we're less than. If you're black, if you're gay, if you're trans, if you're a woman, that you're less than. And for me, being able to tap into my true capacity um, years and years ago was one of, if not my most powerful and endearing personal experiences that I've, I've had because it, it helps me break through the artificial barriers that exist um, to write legislation, to litigate cases, to mobilize communities, uh, to talk to people who don't see my humanity. Uh, that, that is one of the most important tools that I have as, um, as a civil rights lawyer, as a leader, and as a human being uh, to be able to do this work. Wow. Who are the people who have inspired you? There are many, um, my parents. My father was incarcerated for 18 months, left the uh, Liberia, came back to the United States and had to pick himself up from the floor to take care of his family. Mm -hmm. My mother had to protect us from rebels that would try to come in uh, to attack 
women in the house and try to rape them. Uh, so my my parents, for their courage and their tenacity, uh, James Baldwin, for being James Baldwin, for having the fire to demand that people see him as a human being and recognize all parts of his identities and assign them value. Um, Gandhi, mm -hmm. for everything that he did in his life. Um, Nelson Mandela, uh, the list goes on. There, there are many leaders in the past, many people who have really uh, touched me and informed how I live my life. Um, Alice Walker, Maya Angelou, I mean, the list goes on. You know, a lot of people I've spoken to lately have been mentioning James Baldwin, and I love it. Yeah, it's a renaissance. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a renaissance. He just transcends time, and his messages are as relevant today as they were when he wrote them, which is both sad and prophetic. Mm-hmm. Um, because you would think that what he was preaching about in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, uh, the 80s, uh, would have seeped through um, in order to really propel us further than where we are now. I, I do believe that his messages seeped through to build momentum for where we are now. Um, but... It's also sad to me that we're not further than where we are. Yeah, now. that when you read his words, like they really do hit you deep because you feel exactly what he's saying. Yes. And and when you listen to his voice, uh, it just transports you. And I want to, you know, return to your work a little bit. So from what I understand, I think a lot of people think racism is gone now that Trump is gone. <laughs> Trump is gone. Or at least I've seen people say like, oh, now we don't have to worry about that. And I think that people may think the same thing when it comes to LGBTQ equality and the whole, you know, fight that ended with marriage equality. So I think now people are like, okay, well, we're there, we've made it. But how do we sort of educate and prioritize the fight? Because clearly, like, there is not equality. No, no, we're far from it. Yeah. Uh, people can get married today, but they could lose their homes tomorrow. They could get married today, but they could be slain on the streets tomorrow and not have any protections under certain hate crime laws. Uh, they could get married today, but be denied services mm -hmm. in a retail store simply because they're LGBTQ. And then we'll send it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Right. 68 countries around the globe criminalize LGBTQ identity and or same-sex relationships. And in some of those countries, it's punishable by death. Um, last year, at least 44 transgender and gender nonconforming people were killed in the United States. The highest in any year since we've been tracking those numbers. Um, we know that uh, in 29 states in the United States, we don't have comprehensive legal protections for LGBTQ people, which is why we are advocating for the Equality Act, a federal legislation that would provide comprehensive legal protections to LGBTQ people. So there is a lot of work to do. And yes, LGBTQ people can get married in the United States, 
but they don't have comprehensive legal protections in the United States and certainly not around the globe. And also, you know, marriage isn't the end all be all of happiness. There are so many other things to make people's life <laughs> full. Life full. <laughs> Right. If I can get married, but um, I'm not treated as a human being, then I'm not really free. Right, right. Um, you know, I often talk about the experiences of black and brown transgender people in this country. Um, and I do it often because I want people to put themselves in the shoes of others who don't look like them, who have different experiences from them. So imagine that you are fearful of walking home at night. Just imagine that you're fearful of walking home at night because you're a transgender and you know that you may be attacked or killed. Just the concept of freedom, you know, doesn't align with that reality. Mm -hmm. And you're sort of living in a state of trauma that yes. people just don't understand. State of trauma, state of fear, state of anger. Yeah. Um, and it's important for us to put ourselves in those shoes uh, because that's the only way our democracy will actually work for all of us, is if we shift from focusing on ourselves to focusing on our communities. Yes, let's do that. I was speaking to a friend, and he mentioned that he sees that sexuality seems to be disappearing from DEI surveys around the country. And so I was like, oh, well, maybe I should ask, why, why do you think that's occurring? What should we do? you know, to make it known that this should be something that is on surveys and questionnaires because this is an important part of people's life. I think there are two things that are happening. One, there is a fear of asking about sexual orientation and gender identity because those are things that are not easily discernible. You have to ask right. someone and the person has to disclose. And so there's some discomfort uh, in some institutions about asking those questions. Um, there's also some concerns about asking those questions because of liability, uh, which I reject. And I think that it, people should ask those questions and people can deny, cannot disclose. You don't have to answer the questions. Right. Um, but I think it's important that we are counted. Um, we've asked the federal government to uh, incorporate LGBTQ identities uh, in their surveys. Uh, the federal government and in many states around the country in the U.S. do not track uh, sexual orientation and gender identity on their surveys. And uh, President Biden recently issued an executive order that directs federal agencies to really reassess how they're compiling demographic data uh, and include and to include LGBTQ um, as identities that they would be tracking. Now, this is incredibly important because if we're not trapped, it is as if we don't exist. Yep. And when agencies are determining how to allocate resources um, and how to allocate those resources, meaning how targeted to allocate those resources, if we're not listed on the surveys, then those resources are not going to be provided in a way that we need them. And so we have to um, support more comprehensive data collection, both from the federal government and the state governments, as well as private institutions. Yeah, I also feel like if we don't ask these questions, then everyone sort of sits in their assumptions. And so, you know, the, the natural assumption for people or the sort of what we decide is the standard is a heterosexual relationship. And we just don't think about other people 
So we're like, oh, lovely to meet you. Are you married? <laughs> What's your husband's name? <laughs> Maybe they don't have a husband. Like, yes, is the the heteronormative construct that we live in that we have to deconstruct, and mm -hmm. and that is once again forcing people to really see beyond themselves. Absolutely. Could you share a piece of advice with LGBTQ youth who may be struggling? Uh, yes, uh, it harkens back to the point I made about capacity. Mm -hmm. But for young people who are struggling, I want to make sure that they take some time and look in the mirror and, and find a friend. I did that as a child. Um, I did that as a young person, I should say. Um, because I knew at some point in my life, I would face uh, adversity within my family for being gay. Yeah. And I had to really see myself and find myself. Uh, to make sure that I was grounded when that day, when that day comes or would come. And for young people who are struggling right now, I want them to know that there is a community out here to support them. There's a global community of both LGBTQ and non-LGBTQ people who see them, who see their humanity, who appreciate the unique gifts that they bring to the table and they should just know that we're here to support them and that they can reach out to us at any point in time. Um, they can go onto our website at hrc.org and they can get resources um, that they may need uh, to help them get through any difficult times that they're facing. Thank you for saying that. Um, I'm gonna ask you my two final questions. They're my favorite ones. What is your greatest fear for humanity? My greatest fear for humanity is that we will stop seeing each other, that we will get further embroiled in the noise, mm -hmm. and that we will live in a more polarized state. Because with polarization comes death. Um, if we can't see that climate change is happening, if we can't see that trans people are being demonized and attacked if we can't see that women are just not being treated the same as men in so many parts of our society then we won't really fully realize the promise of our democracy yeah and so then on a final note what is your greatest hope for humanity oh that we will see beyond ourselves <laughs> that we will tap into our humanity and actually see each other's humanities. Um, I want to get to a place where I can walk into a room mm -hmm. and know, not because someone told me, but know based on my instinct and my, my intuition that people see my humanity and that I'm being treated like everyone else. I want that too. It sounds elusive. And it sounds like it's unattainable, but that's why we have to remember how important it is to dream. Absolutely. Well, Alfonso, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to speak with you. You too. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show.
I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.